There was a man one time, worked all his life, saved as much money as he could, loved his money so much that when he saw the time that he was to die drawing near, he said to his wife, he said, Honey, I'd like you to take all of our money, all of the thousands, millions of dollars that I've worked so hard for, and when I die, I'd like you to put it in my casket and bury me with it because I'd like to take it with me. Well, the wife was hesitant, but he made her promise, and so she promised, okay, I'll do it. Well, the man dies, and they have the service, and the casket is open, and she walks up, and she has this really nice, ornate box, and she places the box in the casket. They close it and take him away, and one of her friends comes up and says, now, you didn't really put all of your money in there with him. She says, well, I promised him that I would do it. And she says, the friend said, you mean to tell me that you put all of, all of your money in, in there? And she says, yes, I did. I wrote him a check. <laughs> she was the thinker, wasn't she? When you think of an idol, what do you think of today? If you're not in Asia and you think of the little Buddha statue, but here in America, you think of money, like this guy, and money is, as his idol. You think of material things, you know, you got a boat, you got a nice house, you know, you got the trophy wife, all this kind of stuff. You think of that kind of thing. Was it the trophy wife that did it for you? You can laugh if you have one, right? What do you think of? Well, normally you don't think of people, ironically. Normally you think of stuff, material things. You normally don't think of, of human beings as idols, but we have them. In fact, our, our brothers and sisters over in Russia have seen some of it just this week. Remember when I went to Russia, I saw these things all over the place. They're icons of saints who have died. And if you go into any Russian Orthodox church, they will have these all over the walls. And if you hang around long enough, you'll see some people come in and bow down and pray before these icons. And what they're doing is praying to these saints who have died, asking for various requests. Now to us, in our culture, that seems a little barbaric, unless you've been to the Hard Rock Cafe in Dallas. Remember when Kathy and I went for the first time, we were given some kind of gift certificate or something to go, and so we thought, okay, well, this will be fun, and so we went, and of course, the first thing you're struck with is just your hair is peeled back because of the volume of the music. <laughs> you walk in there, and what's neat about the one in Dallas, if you've been there, is it used to be a church. It used to be the McKinney Avenue Church. And it still looks like a church from the outside. Inside, a lot of the architecture looks churchy. In fact, they have stained glass inside there. And on these 50-foot high stained glass walls are Chuck Berry, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, and the one right in the middle has Elvis sitting on a throne. And you walk in, you think, well, that's, that's kind of cute. You know, you got the church motif, you got the stained glass. Until you think about it, this still is a place of worship. 
We've got our idols, and we even call them that now, as David mentioned. We've got our idols sitting on the throne. You think, well, Elvis is not really our idol. Okay? We laugh tongue-in-cheek as he's still around someplace. Well, there's a British pop singer named Robbie Williams. Spoke on BBC Radio last year and made this comment. He was talking about getting over alcoholism, but it's after that. He said, he said it's great to get in front of 60,000 people knowing that when you get off stage, you're not going to get drunk. Instead of drinking, I pray. Not for long. I ask Elvis to look after me. I've got the tattoo on my arm. Elvis, grant me serenity. Before the, before the gig, we all huddle and pray to Elvis to look after us while we're on stage. No joke. Now, to us, this seems unthinkable. We would never do this, right? We would never pray to Elvis or to bow before an icon like this and pray to some dead saint because that's not our culture. We're much more subtle. We're much more subdued with the way that we worship people. We still do it, but we do it in a more subtle way. You probably would never think of your friends as idols, your family as an idol, your spouse, your kids, parents, certainly not your in-laws as an idol. But we can struggle with them being that. If you read Romans chapter 1, it says that the people in there were condemned because they worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Worshipping and serving anything other than the Creator is idolatry, including people. We worship people because we look to them to give us what we think we need. People make us feel good. People affirm us. People provide for us. Uh, we look at financially, people take care of us. Our security often is looked at a person to meet that need for us. Well, we're going to continue today talking about this in this series called Giants in the Land. It's the whole idea of having this view of people that is huge as opposed to a view of God that doesn't match it. Giants in the land. And last week we looked, you remember, at the curse of self-esteem. How our culture is so wrapped up in self-esteem. And what it is is essentially redefining our shame. That we have all sinned and we know it. Our conscience bothers us. And many have also been sinned against. That is, somebody did something to you. And you feel shame for that because of something that you didn't initiate but was done to you. And so you feel shame for what you've done and what's done to you. And our culture says, well, you have this low self-esteem, you feel bad about yourself, you have this shame, the way that you take care of that is you do all these other things and you gather people around you to affirm you and to make you feel good and to kind of mask what you still know is true, and that is that you have this shame from sin you've done or that's done to you. But the Bible, as we saw last week, says no, shame is only removed when sin is removed. And sin is removed when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and when you have placed your faith in him. But we also saw last week that even though we fear God, even though we worship God, we also struggle, even the best of us, with 
God-fearing people. Now, before we get into our main text today in Jeremiah, I'd like for us to look just kind of rapid fire at some verses that you'll see on the screen of some of the greats of Scripture who struggled with fearing people just like you and me, not the least of which was Abraham. If you remember in Genesis 12, Abraham and his wife Sarah in a time of drought went to Egypt where there was plenty of water at the Nile, except there was a problem. He had a beautiful wife and he feared that they would kill him and take his wife. And so look at what he told Sarah. He said, please say that you're my sister so that it will go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. He says, would you please kind of tell a half-truth? Uh, say you're my sister so that they won't kill me. Abraham was afraid of people. And he did the very same thing again in chapter 20, just eight chapters later. It's similar to what the Jews did when they left Egypt to come into the promised land. God says, I want you to take the land, take it over, conquer the people that are there. And this is where we get the title for our series, Giants in the Land. They go and they see the people, and then they come back, and this is what they say. In Numbers 13, they say, it says, Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. See, when we fear the giants, the people who can harm us or who can embarrass us or who can make us feel bad, then we won't do what God's told us to do because we fear how they're going to treat us. King Saul wasn't much different. He wouldn't obey God to do such and so in a particular battle. And look at what Saul confesses. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I fear the people and listen to their voice. The New Testament, the time of Christ, you know, there were actually some of the Pharisees who placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but you never knew it. Why not? John tells us, Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They knew the truth. They even believed the truth. But they loved the approval of people so much, they wouldn't live the truth. And even among Jesus' own disciples, this problem occurred. They were walking along the road. They were talking. And Jesus says, what have you talking, been talking about? And Mark tells us, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. What are you guys talking about? Well, nothing. What were they talking about? Which one of them was perceived to be the greatest by the people? Again, it's a fear of people. It's needing people for your esteem. And probably the greatest of these, in a poor way, is Peter. When you look at how he denied the Lord. Again, just look at the screen while I read to you from Luke chapter 22, several verses, starting at 59. This is after Jesus has been arrested... And Peter standing close by, and after an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter must have felt like Adam felt. When we looked last week, remember, God goes walking in the garden after Adam had sinned. What did Adam and Eve do? They headed for the bushes to hide from the presence of God. What did Peter do as soon as the gaze of Jesus looked right at him after he had sinned? But he tried to hide. And he went out and wept bitterly. These verses show us that the fear of man is not just a common struggle for the greats in the Bible, but it's a common struggle for the greats here too. Or if you want to look at it differently, us common folk struggle with fearing people just like the common folk did in the scriptures. They were people just like us. The difference is their lives were recorded. Would you like to have your life recorded in scripture for everybody to read? might change the way we live if they had known that that would take place. A lot of times, though, when we are afraid of people, it's simply that we're involved in a normal experience that would bring fear to anybody. I mean, each of these circumstances, you can't fault them for being afraid. It's when their fear of the, of the, of the people is bigger than their appreciation or their fear of God. And a lot of times when we experience great pain in our lives through various people, maybe your parents abused you, maybe there was a bitter divorce, maybe there was some kind of, uh, I don't know, somebody does something to you, it hurts you, and you've learned that, yes, God is all-powerful, but God allowed this person to hurt me. And so it's as if we say, look, all bets off now. If God's going to let people hurt me, then I'm just going to take God and kind of set him out of the picture because he really doesn't have much to do with it anyway. He didn't stop this. And now it's between me and you, person and person. Because if God's going to allow you to hurt me, now I have to do anything I can to not let you hurt me. I fear you. And if I know that you're going to be upset by me doing a certain thing, then I won't do that. I'll walk on eggshells. I will worship you because I need you to treat me the way that I feel I need to be treated. I fear your reaction. And God allowed it all. Sometimes we would rather die for Jesus than live for him. You can kill me. Are you a Christian? Somebody held a gun up to your head? Are you a Christian? Probably most of us would say yes, and with boldness, with brazenness. And yet if somebody makes fun of us, or if somebody doesn't like us, or if we're in a circumstance where we know that being moral or ethical or doing anything that's right is going to cause us to lose face, then all of a sudden we're like Peter standing by the fire. I don't know the man. Where earlier, Peter, that very same night, had said, Lord, deny you? I'll die for you. It's one thing to die for Jesus. It's another thing to live for him and to deny yourself. We wonder, how are we perceived? What do people think of me? What did they think of what I just said? Everybody laughed, but that guy over there didn't laugh. I wonder why he didn't laugh when I said that. What do they think of my outfit today? You know, am I well-dressed? You know, what do you think? And we're consumed with how we're perceived by other people. 
and sometimes driven by it. Sometimes we'll be so driven by how we're perceived that we'll dress goofy so that we will be perceived and be accepted somehow by somebody, somewhere. Jeremiah 17 is what we're going to look at today. And so turn there, if you would, with me. Idolatry today really is no different than idolatry in the time of Jeremiah. Idolatry doesn't change throughout history. It's just our idols who change. When things go well, whom do you give credit? A lot of times it's ourself, right? When things go poorly, to whom do you turn? When you need security, where do you turn? What drives your passions? What gives you your passion for life? In the old days, it might have been a statue. Today, it might be your neighbor's Lexus. It might be another person. My neighbor doesn't have a Lexus, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Idolatry is this, and it's very simple. It's looking to anything created to replace the Creator. Jeremiah 17, the context of this, Judah was threatened by foreign invaders. And their test, their, their, what they were struggling with, is trusting and turning to somebody else for protection or turn to the Lord. Now to us, we may say, you know what, I can't really relate to that. But there's no difference between Judah looking to foreigners for help and you and me looking to other people to help us as opposed to looking to the Lord. Look at verse 5. We're going to start there. This is what God says. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed is the one who trusts in mankind, in people. His strength is in people. It's in flesh. And notice... To do that, you have to turn your heart away from God. When we hear the word cursed, all kinds of things come to our mind. Cursed is the man. It's almost like there's a hex on him. And that's not what it means. It's not that somebody has cursed you. I know I a guy one time that actually thought that a witch had put a, a, a curse on him and lived his life in fear of everything that bad happened to him because this witch put a curse on him. And I remember telling him, no! But he wouldn't, wouldn't do it. And this guy was a believer, too. Curse, this kind of a curse, is always conditional. And its effect only takes effect on you when somebody does what the curse is intended to prevent. In other words, you're cursed if you do this. You're, you have bad results when you make these bad decisions. That's essentially what this is talking about. You are cursed when you make this decision, when you turn away from the Lord and instead you turn to people as the source of your strength and your security. If you are looking for a person to give you security, to meet your needs, to financially provide for you, you are going to live a life of continual disappointment, a life of continual frustration and anger. 
because people will fail you. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't trust people. It means you don't trust in them. They are not the source of your strength. You can trust them. They can do what they say and not do what they say. Are they trustworthy? That's fine, but that's different as opposed to trusting in them to give you what you feel you need. I spoke with a woman some time ago who told you, and I kid you not, she said, quote, I don't care if I have to get married ten times. I am going to find a man to make me happy. And she is well on her way. And the sad part is, as she begins to age, you can see the desperation. In fact, the last time I spoke with her, the desperation because the beauty is fleeting. And what she always had as an idol to be able to grab any man she wanted, she's now losing that. And she realized she has nothing to grab. It's sad. And I pray for her. If the goal of your life is to be happy with a person, you are headed down a dead-end street because even a great spouse makes a lousy God. If your trust is in people, if your heart turns away from the Lord, Jeremiah says it's a fatal choice. Here it's called a curse. And now let's look why it's a curse. Verse 6. Why is this man cursed who turns away from the Lord? Verse 6, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Look at this picture that's given. A bush in the desert doesn't even see when prosperity comes, but lives in stony wastes in the wilderness land of salt without inhabitant. The place in Israel that Jeremiah is speaking of is what you're seeing. This is the wilderness of Judea. You can kind of see a bigger overview of it here. It's, it's bleak, it's, it's vast, but it is bleak. And you can see there to the left, the Dead Sea. Salt. It talks about a, a land of salt without inhabitant. And it's got to be talking about this because the only place in Israel where you've got this salt and in the Dead Sea, nothing can live. There's such a high concentration of salt, there's nothing that can live there. And it's a beautiful picture of what it's like apart from God because the, all the salt and the, the, the deadly part of it came about the, the place that you're looking. Just the, the, the tip there, the far right tip of the Dead Sea is where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. Some say it's even under the water there, and it very well could be. But this is where Sodom and Gomorrah was. The epitome of turning from God it used to be a lush land, which is why Lot wanted it. And now look at it, because they turn away from God. And it's also a picture of what happens in our lives. It's beautiful also, though, if you look at what can happen at a person whose life is like this. Because there will come a time in the millennial kingdom in the future where this land, where there will be... Uh, fish living once again in the Dead Sea. That's the restoration that, that Christ is going to bring even to this area. And the picture is great because people who turned away from God, this is what it's like. It's bleak. There's no existence. But turning to the Lord, and it can be refreshed. Our problem is we want it now. We want it immediately. 
and people can give us the illusion of giving immediate satisfaction rather than waiting on God for his best. Waiting on God for what he says, do you really think I can help you in your life? Then wait for me, because I have my best in mind for you if you will wait for me. But instead, we want it now. Here we see a painful principle that when we worship people, we end up painfully dissatisfied. Painfully dissatisfied. Some years ago, Kathy and I read a book on marriage, and we only got about halfway through it, and we got so frustrated with it because it would give these scenarios of affair after affair, you know, how to affair-proof your marriage. And to tell you about that, they'd take you through all these affairs, and we're going, good grief, we don't want to read about that. It had some principles, though, we're trying to glean from it. And I finished the book a couple of years ago and began trying to live some of the things and basically the whole premise of it, and you may have heard this in some uh, Christian psychology, even perhaps in some churches, whatnot, but basically that our lives are needy people. This was in the context of marriage, but really it goes across the board. That we are needy people who have a love tank or a love bank. The idea of people in your lives can make deposits into that, and they can also make withdrawals. And however you however they've treated you, the level of your love tank rises or it falls, and the, the, the level of your relationship depends on the height of your tank. In other words, I'm totally dependent on you and how you fill my tank for our relationship. And I tried this baloney for a couple of years in my marriage. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that Kathy's tank was always far too bigger than I could fill. And so was mine. My tank was huge. She thinks she's pumping in gallons and gallons of love, and I'm thinking it's a drop in the bucket. And that's the whole problem with us as needy people. Because our needs are always going to be far bigger than reality. They're really greeds, not just needs, but greeds. We're going to devote our whole message to this next week. Do we need people? Yes, we do but not the way you think, probably, or at least not the way you've been needing them. We think we need people for affirmation, for sex, for anything that fills our desires. But we're going to see truly what the Bible says our needs are regarding people next week. There's a West African proverb that goes, and I love it, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. Isn't that great? The man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. That almost should be in the Bible. That's so great. When we don't perceive that God is meeting our needs, what, the way we want it, when we want it, how we want it, what will we do? But we will turn from Him, and we will lean on our own understanding, and we will head off in a direction that we think is going to make us happy. And I have seen this in my family, in the divorces, and there have been many. Without exception, uh, I have seen this happen. That what will happen is there gets to be a difficult circumstance in the relationship, and rather than do what the Bible says, they lean on their own understanding and say, you know what? If I do what the Bible says, I'm going to live unhappy the rest of my life. It's their own understanding. And instead they turn and they head off to find a new lover, a new vocation, a new marriage, a new this, a new that, anything to 
to get away from this pain. And the sad part is, and again, without exception, when time has been shown to live it out, is that the pain ends up being worse over here than it was from what they were running from. And it's like any kind of an addiction, you know, be it drugs, be it pornography, be it any kind of a thing that you're addicted to. It's got to be more to cover the pain of before. This hurt, I do this in order to cover this hurt, but now I start hurting from this, I've got to do even more now. And it's just a spiral down, it's the, it's the devil's deceit. Trusting in the Lord is the opposite of trusting in man. Look at the contrast now in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. From cursed we've gone now to blessed. And the word blessed here is written in the way that Jeremiah wrote it, that it talks about that it always indicates an intimate relationship that you're blessed because of your intimate relationship with, in this case, the Lord. PBS had a fascinating documentary in September, uh, the anniversary of September 11th, and it was called Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero. Did you see it? If uh, you didn't, you might uh, watch your PBS station uh, for the, or channel and watch it. I mean, biblically, it's on the moon. It's, it's out to lunch biblically. It's wrong in a lot of the perspectives, but what is helpful in watching this is to see how different worldviews, different people here in America, reacted to 9-11. And as Kathy and I were laying there watching this, you, you could see just the different worldviews. We'd lay there and, and they'd interview this guy and I'd say, okay, he's a deist by the way he's talking. And the next one, he's new age by the way he's talking. You could just see they would bring their perspective into it and say, this is how I see God responding at 9-11. And all of them, without exception, came to the place of, I feel God is this because this happened. I now feel this about God because of 9-11. And it was all based on feeling. It's a fascinating look. I'd love to have a small group sometime where we looked at that video and just kind of all sat down, watched a portion of it, stopped it, and talked about how they deal with pain in life. But the whole problem is, and I think this is the problem of our whole God bless America mentality that we're in right now, is you want to just say that's great, but who is God? God has become our mascot for the United States. He is not our Lord whom we worship and serve. He is our, he is our mascot. God bless America. Well, great, but who is God? Well, it's who you feel he is. It is not the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and whom if you don't accept, you'll go to hell. That's not the God we're blessed, that we're asking to bless America. It's this benevolent Santa Claus that makes everything happy. It doesn't judge our sin. It judges the Arabs' sins. Okay? That's the mentality that we have. Consequently, our God is a wet noodle. And we don't want to trust him because, look, he allows this pain. He allows pain in my life. Why should I trust him? He has no backbone. This is how I feel. But instead, we turn to the scripture and we see a God who is just, a God who condemns sin, a God who is love, a God who forgives sin in perfect balance. God is not a wet noodle. He is a patient God 
wanting all to repent and not perish. So the question I've got for you today is this. Are you ready? Do you really believe God can be trusted with your life? Do you really believe that? Because our tendency is that once we've experienced enough pain through people, to pull away from the God who allowed it and to start worshiping the people so that they don't hurt us. Or start worshiping the people so that they'll give us what we feel like we need. Be it this, 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 and this. We look to people to be our God and not to God to be our God. I remember reading about a man some years ago who fell 110 feet off a water tower, landed face first in a pile of soft dirt, and lived. In fact, as they were carrying him away on the stretcher to the ambulance, you know what he asked of them? He said, be careful, don't drop me. He was afraid of falling three feet after he had survived a 110-foot fall. And I thought, that is how we live as Christians. That we have no problem trusting God for the 110-foot fall to hell. We know that he'll save us from that, right? But the three-foot fall of how are we going to pay the mortgage next week? The three-foot fall of how am I going to deal with the fact that they just embarrassed me because I said something that was right or moral? You understand what I'm saying? He is Lord of our eternity, but he's not Lord of Tuesday. Just as the word cursed is a warning to those who don't trust in the Lord, so the word blessed is a promise to those who will dare to trust him. Do you really trust God with your life? Is he really able to help you find a spouse? Is he really able to trust you, uh, to help you, to take care of you financially? I mean, is God, who made the universe by simply speaking, able to do that? Do you really trust him? Do you trust him with the pain that he allows in your life? Either he's God or he's not God. Look at verse 8 at the promise of what happens if you will trust in the Lord. Why is the man who trusts in the Lord blessed? Verse 8, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Notice that this verse does not assume that trusting God gives an easy life. You won't fear when the heat comes. The heat's going to come. It comes to everybody. The thing is, are you going to fear when it comes? And in fearing, like Abraham did, like the Jews, Exodus Jews did, like Peter did, like the disciples did, like you and I do, we get in a circumstance where, where we fear this. Our natural tendency is to turn and look to people to be our Savior. I am lonely. So what do you do? You! Marry me! Right? And we live in desperation as opposed to in dependence on God. And it all stems from trust. This picture that you see is the only place in Israel where there is a continual flow of Water. Well, I say the only place. It, it's, it's the only place that's this lush. This is the headwaters of the Jordan River. And even in a time of drought, these waters never dry up. This place is continually green. 
And so I chose this picture because it's a great contrast to think about the wilderness that Jeremiah described as opposed to the green trees that live off of this stream. And this is the contrast that we're to note. If we trust in the Lord, we'll be like this. Even in a time of drought, you bear fruit. There's a simple chart that illustrates this well. You get cursed and blessed. And this is Jeremiah's chart. This is not mine. But you see, the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength is contrasted with the man who trusts in the Lord. This side, whose heart turns away from the Lord, this side, whose trust is the Lord. He is cursed, for he will be like a bush in the desert. This guy he is like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. Over here, he won't even see when prosperity comes. This guy will not fear when the heat comes. This guy, but he will live in stony waste in the wilderness. This guy, his leaves will be green, will not be anxious in a year of drought. This guy is a, salt, a land of salt without inhabitants, dead. This guy doesn't even cease to yield fruit in a time of drought. Beautiful contrast. Beautiful contrast. If the results of blessing and cursing are, are so clear, why would anybody choose not to trust in the Lord? Because of this verse, verse 9. Verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why do we turn away from the God? Because we're leaning on our own heart that is deceiving us. Our own heart that says, man, you've got to have it now. You've got to have what you think you need now. And so we'll turn away from what God says, even though what God says is, requires a lot of pain. And we'll turn to our own understanding and, ironically, end up in a lot worse pain. And just start over. Forty percent of Americans die every year from cardiovascular disease. It's the number one health threat in our country. It takes more than 2,500 lives daily. But there is another cardiovascular disease that has 100% fatality. And that is our fallen spiritual heart that is deceitful. It will deceive us if you lean on your own understanding. We were not designed to lean on our own understanding. We were designed to lean on the Word of God. You can see the whole thing in the garden where Eve tried to lean on her own understanding. Well, the food looks good. It makes me wise and fall for the devil's lie as opposed to leaning on the Word of God. D.L. Moody said, and I love it, the old preacher, he said, it's easier for me to have faith in the Bible than to have faith in D.L. Moody for Moody has fooled me lots of times. Look at verse 10 and 11. If we can't trust the heart, then what do we do with it? God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. As a partridge that, that hatches eggs which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune but unjustly. In the midst of his days it will forsake him, and in the end he will be a fool. The whole idea there with the partridge hatching eggs in which it is not laid, what happens when the chicks hatch? They wander off, say, hey, you're not my mom, and wanders off. Same thing with riches or trusting in man. You make a fortune unjustly, in the midst of his days it forsakes you. You lean on man, in the midst of your days it will forsake you, and you'll end up being a fool. Our only recourse is to trust the Lord above all else, including your own deceitful heart. Why can we trust God above even our own understanding? 
Because you know what? God has a better vested interest in you than even you do. It's His glory. And He wants you to respond that He may be glorified and that you may be improved to be like the Lord Jesus. Why can we trust Him? Look at verse 12. It's the last verse we'll look at. I mean, the theme goes on, but we'll stop at verse 12. Why trust the Lord even above our own deceitful hearts? Because a glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Where is our sanctuary? Where is our security? It's not in man. It's not even in this man, myself. But it's in the Lord, the sovereign God, who has a glorious throne. It is pure. It's from the beginning. It is eternal and is the place of our sanctuary. It is secure. That's why we trust Him. Do you really think God can be trusted with your life? If so, then live that way. You're headed into Thanksgiving this week. And the reason that I wanted to do this message about worshiping people this week is because you're going to be around some people this week you're not normally around. Your family, your friends that you don't see for quite a while. A lot of us grew up, perhaps with family, that we were afraid of them because of the way they treat us. I hope that you'll take... Jeremiah 17 with you, wherever you go to Thanksgiving, and that you'll read it that morning. And that you will not allow yourself to be swayed to fear people, but rather to serve them, to love them, and instead to fear God. Let's pray. Our Father, we all bow before you today, having succumbed to the fear of man in our lives. In fact, this is a daily struggle for us, and our, cult our culture encourages it. It says that we have to look good to be accepted, that we have to have money be accepted, that, and the list just goes on. All we need in order to have our love tanks filled. I pray, Lord, instead of having us look at ourselves as needy people, that we would see the glorious truth of your word that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what you have provided for us in Jesus Christ is so rich that like him, knowing where we've come from and where we're going, we can, as he did at the Last Supper, gird ourselves and take on the form of a servant and wash feet. So Lord, help us this week as we face our families, as we face our friends to be servants knowing that we're headed to heaven and we have nothing to prove to anyone, but that we will instead love people and not fear them. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Lord bless you.